0: Welcome to the second episode of the skeptically inclined science podcast, with me Evan and Tom. Hello, everybody. So today uh, I'm going to talk about the drug remdesivir, the that is going to be that is currently being used to treat COVID-19, uh, and just to go into some uh, insight into why it's proven to be a controversial treatment. And what about you, Tom?
1: Okay, I'm looking into T-cell responses uh, to SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus infections in human. I'm looking at three
0: different papers, trying to paint a better picture about adaptive immune system. Okay. Sounds interesting. Um, before we get into the headlines, we again just see how each other are doing. Uh, how about you, Tom? I heard uh, you were listening to the new Taylor Swift Man. Album.
1: Man, I am sitting here and I am dying to get something off my chest.
0: Okay, I'm not about Taylor Swift or uh, about Taylor Swift.
1: It's Taylor Swift related. It's uh, my own coming out uh, this week. So <laughs> I just want to get into this before we dive into science.
0: Okay, hope everyone is strapped in. How are you coming out? So I hope base- your girlfriend knows. <laughs>
1: Basically, uh, I've been living in Ireland for uh, almost ten years, and I've been fighting with this for a long time. But for maybe last three or four, three or four years, man, I've been he- I've been feeling hella Celtic.
0: So, but maybe tell so for people who don't know, Tom is Polish or. Like I don't know. Originally Polish is that how you would say it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not like my parents smuggled me into Poland. I yeah, was like, yeah. so I was you born were born in, in Poland. Poland.
1: Your parents are Polish. Yes, 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 yes. And then we emigrated to Ireland. And then I was for the longest time I didn't want to be Irish. And for the past <laughs> three or four years, I've been feeling this strong feelings towards the Emerald Island. And finally, I put literally I put the pin into the cork board and uh, which proclaimed that I am from Dublin, from Ireland and not from Poland. So there is that.
0: Yeah. So what was it you weren't you had not so you've been there over for a year now? Year, a year, and, a year half, and a half. And I wasn't and sure you where never to put. had put a pin because yeah, we for have your this, location.
1: Yeah, we have this corkboard where corkboard where everybody puts the pin from where they're from. Uh it's like the whole world. So I was leaving this off because I wasn't sure but this week it happened.
0: Um Ireland is super humble that uh <laughs> thank you you chose, uh, chose us.
1: Another thing man, another thing that I have to say before we get into it it's a uh, this is completely opinion based. So <laughs> frankly I don't care about anybody else's opinions. So basically uh, Tay Tay Taylor Swift she released a surprising uh, album, uh, it came out I think last week, uh, last week, and it's getting very good reviews uh, online, but in my not-so-humble opinion, it's shit. <laughs> Tay-Tay, get back to 1989, get back to Red, this is the stuff, this is what people want, nobody wants this stuff. This but is what's, just...
0: so, what's so uh, bad about it, I just don't
1: boring. Really. You know, it's just boring. When I was listening to 1989 and Red, I was like on my way to work. I was like getting all cozy feelings. You know, I was listening to Style. I was listening to Love Story. I was listening to uh, We Belong Together. And that get me all hyped up for work. And now she comes out with this boring bullshit when it's just like some deep reflections. She, she got me so bored. I wasn't even listening to what she's talking about. <laughs>
0: Okay. Pointless. Well, this is just his opinion. This is just Tom's opinion. So please, Taylor Swift fans or whatever they're called, don't hate on us.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is just me. Evan doesn't sign. I I signed this message.
0: <laughs> yeah. But I I understand. Okay. Well, do I'm- I understand? I don't think. <laughs> I do. Let's let's get let's 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 get a deep dive into science. Yeah. Let's draw a line. Um. <laughs> On that note, yeah, we'll go into the headlines. Yeah, um, and
1: uh, and if I can just tell you one more thing, yeah, that we get a, a huge positive feedback from people, and I was actually I was actually approached by a couple of uh, scientists, and uh, they pitched me interesting topics for a discussion. Definitely not today, but some other time. And I just want to uh, give you little nuggets of um, of these things that I've been I was told. So uh, one of these, and uh, listen carefully to this now, because this is gold. So one study uh, showed that um, in rodents, and that could, be, that could translate into humans as well, that it was showed that if you have a, a rat uh, that was a virgin and you put it in the female and uh, they, they're going to mate, the, fir- the, the first m- female mate will define future choices of that male. So they did it with, like, uh, def- they they took a female rat that was, like, hella smelly, <laughs> and they make them two have sex. And from that point onwards, that male rat was, like, deliberately picking a smelly rat to to have a bit of fun with. Oh. How crazy is that?
0: Yeah. It's...
1: I know. So, ladies, loads of responsibility on you because you can literally make or destroy the man. And, but, do, do uh, I, another... but
0: can I ask, like, why did they choose mm-hmm. that? made in the first place is it just because it was easy uh, accessible or
1: i have n- i didn't read the paper it was just something that i was told on the corridor or yeah on the corridor of our laboratory and i was like oh listen we we, we heard your podcast and uh, this is something fun you might want to mention so i just uh i'm just kind of uh putting back on you whatever i heard on the corridors people uh when people were approaching me yeah and uh an- and there was another paper uh from my colleague Uh, She sent me a paper and the title of it is is brilliant. The title of this paper is uh, Clitoral Stimulation Induces Conditioned Place Preference for Fast Action in Rat. And basically what this means, they got a bunch of PhD students to stimulate uh, female rats' clitoris and they measured the activities. of the the measure the brain activities basically and uh, it was a manual stimulation (laughs) so good luck
0: they had to manually stimulate their acts
1: yeah yeah and my the first thing that came to my head was uh first of all did the people use that as a training that could later translate into their
0: uh, (laughs) oh my god relationship
1: with females or was it like we, were the rat going through torture because lads could not find the spot? Because you hear that as well that there is a certain group of people that is really bad at finding the spot. So I don't know. These were like these kind of questions that were going through my head.
0: But it's in rats, so I don't think it translates it to humans.
1: I don't know, man. Training is training.
0: <laughs> oh my god.
1: <laughs>
0: okay. Well, yeah, I'm not so, uh, that
1: was that. Was, that was this. That was the little things that people were um, saying to me. Or sending to me over the over the last week and a half since we released the first episode. Okay.
0: So yeah. So thanks again. Um, we do love to see all your weird and wonderful papers. So do let us know on our yeah. Instagram, keep, skeptically inclined, and on Twitter. Keep them coming. At skeptically i. Um, and again, skeptically is spelled with a c. And you can also email us at skepticallyinclined at gmail Again, spelled with a c. So, yeah, will we just get into this week's headlines and science?
1: Yeah, man. Uh, Why don't you take the lead with the first headline?
0: So, um, I suppose this mightn't be as much as a headline, but I'd be watching Trump's press conferences at the moment. He's back doing daily press conferences. I think think he does this because he wants to help build his reputation again after his uh, rating is very low at the moment. Yeah. A so late. one of the things that he's mentioning a lot I see is case fatality rate and he says that America has the low, lowest ca- case fatality rate uh, compared to the other EU countries and other countries in the world and he's trying to frame it as like positive and I think uh, I was watching this and I'm just kind of getting annoyed because it kind of makes it seem like oh they're not doing as bad compared to other countries but he's mm-hmm. kind of... Uh, what's the right word to use here he's he's kind of blurring he's blurring the line of what this statistic measures and it's kind of makes it seem like the deaths aren't as bad as they wanted so I want to just kind of cover this in the podcast basically the kiss fatality rate it's th- known as the death rate and it's the percentage of known virus cases that end in death And basically, it's very easy to calculate. You take the number of people who have died and you divide it by the total number of people diagnosed with the disease. So, for example, if you have 10 people who have died and 100 people have been diagnosed, the case fatality rate is 10%. But it's important to note that it is the ratio between the number of confirmed deaths from the disease and the number of confirmed cases, not total cases. So... Um. Well. So, so. What's the difference, Evan? So. What's the, well. As you've seen last week, we were saying they are skewing the numbers of many. How many deaths are being? Uh. They're confirming how many deaths are due to COVID nineteen and how many are actually confirmed cases. Um. They're not really reporting this as accurately as they could. What this, the case fatality rate? It's it's not really good for fast moving situations like COVID nineteen where there's a delay in the death rate. There's a 14-day delay in the death rate compared to cases. So it doesn't really tell you how badly a country is doing by the virus. Um, And a better metric to actually look at would be country's death rate per capita or per 100,000 people. Um, That's a better metric to look at. And if you looked at it for America, it's definitely within the top 10 of the world. So I just wanted to kind of cover this, that even when he's saying case fatality rate, he's looking at, uh he's kind of trying to skew the data a little bit or engineer it to say that it is lower than it actually is. And he shouldn't be using this metric in this scenario. And do you know what regions of America are affected the most? Um, Well, I've heard Florida and Texas are both doing
1: very badly. Yeah, that's interesting the way he's trying to play with the data to make himself look a little bit better, especially coming close to the elections. Oh,
0: yeah, it's not that surprising. But the reason why I think the American response is so disjointed is because they're not using the proper indicators. It's a very disjointed uh, response to the virus. And there was this article out... Showing what metric each state is measuring, um, mm-hmm. and it says that not a single state actually currently reports the average turnaround time of a PCR test for COVID. So no one knows how long it takes to get the your result, which is very telling. And Hold on.
1: So from the moment from the moment they've taken your sample, you don't know when you're gonna receive your no, results there's back. No,
0: there's nowhere saying that. Like at least here with the HSC, they're t- trying to estimate. They're saying the press reports are saying that it nearly takes a week or more for results, um, which is kind of rendering the testing useless as a means of controlling the disease because people aren't going to isolate when they don't know the result. There is
1: a the, yeah. They can go lots of places in the space of seven yeah. days, and mm-hmm. other
0: metrics. So only eight states report source of exposure, which is useful. For determining community transmission, which Mm -hmm. is super important because you want to know how much is healthcare related, how much is in the community from in in people coming into the country. Half of states fail to to distinguish between probable or confirmed cases. Very few make the distinction between PCR tests for active infection and antibody tests for previous infection. So sometimes the cases they're saying are present in the state actually mightn't even be by pcr and might be i antibody which at that case i don't know does it really mean anything that's just like previous it doesn't show active active cases yeah, which is kind really, of what you want to know yeah uh, and only so and only seven states provide info about health worker infection which i think is very bad seven states provide health yeah. workers uh out of 50 yeah <laughs> So basically, Great what man. this all means is that the lack of standard definitions makes it impossible to compile national data reliably. And basically, they're flying blind in this whole pandemic. They don't know how much is in the community, how much is in healthcare, how long does it take to get a test result. It's just they, no wonder their cases are going to the roof because they don't have any clue of how to yeah. cont- contain it
1: i feel bad for dr fauci having to deal with all of this mess yeah
0: it's just it's ta- like and i can't even i even though trump does not help their whole health system just is built pre- like this President i don't think trump. it would have mattered who it was he's definitely didn't help but their whole health system just so disjointed like i have to say compared to the uk who's doing so well at like compiling compiling lists doing trials because it's very like it's all through the nhs which is uh, able to record much more accurately. Yeah. Um, so this was just well, something interesting I seen, and I think maybe one of the reasons why America is doing so badly at the moment.
1: Yeah. No. I um, I agree with you. And uh, m- you you mentioned that the antibodies and the PCR. So antibodies is the test that would show that you have been infected and you d- and you developed an immune response to it. But you. But that could be quite some after the time. So you could be actually recovered, but still holding on to the antibodies, yeah. and the PCR would detect uh, your viral load as you are uh, as you are sick. So if you if you get a PCR result positive, that means you are currently undergoing an infection. Just to and specify. and
0: to, to make it even clearer, you when you when you have antibodies, you shouldn't be able to spread it. Whereas with the PCR tests, it tells you when that you're infectious. Yes, that's that's okay. the important thing. Uh, So, uh,
1: keeping uh, within the COVID-19 area, I'm going to hit you up with a a very nice and uh, very, very happy news. Uh, Some from our Department of Human Genetics in the Radboud University Medical Center came out a paper. Just give you a little bit of a background to this because it it is a big news. Um, So, to give uh, some background, 3.5% of hospitalized COVID-19 patients were younger than 35. Uh, That's in the Netherlands. And in this group, six out of seven uh, deceased were men. So uh, uh, so we all know that COVID-19 is not that uh, brutal uh, per se, but we still have people dying, dying from it. So uh, the scientists were trying to figure out uh, what is, uh, why, the, why these young men are dying. So everybody's saying it's a disease that attacks uh, elderly and what's not. So basically, uh, the scientists perform a whole uh, exon sequencing to analyze blood of uh, four men
0: maybe uh, tell people that... what an exon sequencing is
1: oh yeah so exons are the coding parts of a gene and uh, and sequencing basically means that you t- take taking a magnifying glass and you're looking at each fragment of the exon trying to decipher uh what it, what what it, what is going on there that's in the most lay terms i can uh, i can describe um so they did this uh, whole exome sequencing so they 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 looked at uh, every exon in the genome and in the in the in this from the sample from four men these four men were pair of two brothers so you already know that it is not a huge uh, sample number but you know we have to work with something and uh, what they found out in this bra in this pair of brother was that um a two-like receptor seven, Uh, Had a loss of function mutation. So basically, you, tool like receptor 7 is a a, a form of an antenna that picks up all of the kind of pathogenic events going on, uh, sends a quick uh, text message to the immune system saying that something is going on, uh, send the army. And basically, these people didn't have that uh, antenna. And that that basically led to the very severe uh consequences of COVID nineteen and um and they died. TLRs and are what yeah, makes
0: t- 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 TLRs are like texting you up. <laughs> and yeah, then the T cell yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. the booty call. It's like you up and then T cell's like crap, we need to get there straight away. Yeah, and, and, and what interns.
1: makes it even more what makes it <laughs> exactly what makes it even more significant is that The probability of finding this mutation uh, in the population by chance is less than 0.1 percent. So you know, like this finding is significant. Yeah. And what else makes it even more significant? It is it is located. This gene is located on the X chromosome. So uh, for all you guys out there, females have two X chromosomes and the male have one X chromosome. So if uh, if some gene on the X chromosome is not working in, in, in guys then we are kind of screwed because we have nothing to replace it with. Whereas females, if on one chromosome they have a mutation, they can always back it up uh, with, od- with the same gene from the other chromosome. So that's why females don't experience uh, the same severity uh, because even if they have that mutation, which is rare, they can they can replace that mutation with a functioning gene from the other chromosome. And another significant thing about tull receptor 7 is that it recognizes single-stranded RNA. Oh, wow. And coro- and coronavirus is not, SARS-CoV-2 is nothing nothing else than single-stranded RNA uh, molecules. really interesting. So th- it was really interesting. And, and we, we all were like very excited when we heard about this paper coming out from our department. So uh, congratulations to everyone involved. And uh, yeah, if you hear about cool papers coming out from Radboud UMC uh, or Radboud University, let us know, guys, because we want to promote that as well.
0: We want them to uh, pay us do (laughs) paper no
1: no 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 payment involved, that's just but we're uh, both yeah we're both we bought
0: a 10 so it's great to see really good science coming out of its scientific papers so um, keep
1: it up this is definitely good news yeah keep it up guys um
0: okay i know you have one more from me right quickly just before we go into the main News. Um, I just wanted to talk about again, as I I had mentioned previously, how the NHS is doing great in their, uh, studies and their research into COVID nineteen. And a really interesting, a really interesting development was found in a a recovery trial, which is similar to where they're trying to look at drugs to see what they could use to treat COVID nineteen. And this trial was carried out using three thousand doctors with 12,000 COVID-19 patients so again it's super useful that they can have a a whole like it's a non-fragmented service so they can test a lot of different patients within their health system. So they wanted to look at patients in ICU and one of the drugs was dexamethasone and it's a cheap just a cheap steroid used to counter inflammation and to treat arthritis. And it actually had shown to reduce deaths by a third among patients on ventilators and ICU. So really good news. The drug only costs £5 a course, which is next to nothing, and it's super widely mm-hmm. available. So this was very surprising, but welcome result. So oh, yeah, yeah so uh, it was great that they were able to find something cheap and easy to use. Um, I'm going to compare this in a way to remdesivir in my main headline, but Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the so it's it's very good news. To um, so, yeah, it's so just a steroid. You said it was yeah, a steroid that they're just used sometimes to treat arthritis. Mm. Okay. Um, this recovery trial is now looking at three other candidate treatments as well. Now, um, an antibody called azithromycin, another antibody called Tisalibumab and a treatment known as convalescent plasma, which is blood is taken from people who had coronavirus. Okay and will contain antibodies that might help those seriously affected. And they're going to infuse that into the people that are sick and see if it helps. So um, hopefully they'll have some results for this uh, over the coming months. So we'll be kind of keeping I- an eye on that to see what they find out. About about the convalescent plasma,
1: uh, I just want to tell you something. I don't know if you know that. But uh, the same thing is being done in Ireland at the moment in the National Blood Centre. And, uh, and I have a, a little bit of news coming in from the source. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to disclose my sources. But uh, they, I was being told that in 20% of people positive, uh, positive by the swab, uh, swab, which means positive by the molecular testing, in 20%, uh, 20% doesn't develop antibodies. So you are positive but you, you're lacking antibody. And this is interesting because this I think it shows the uh, sof- how sophisticated your immune system is and how different and how differently you can respond. We're going to keep we're going to keep uh, keep an eye out for how the covalescent yeah, plasma exactly. treatments going to work um, out.
0: Do you have any other headlines you want to talk about before? Uh,
1: yes, I was torn between continuing my yeah. Neanderthal saga or or talking about uh, a brand new assay. And I decided to talk about the assay. So tell me, Evan, do you remember when this lady came out? I don't even remember her name, but she claimed that she could develop this uh, this machine that can perform all the sorts of different
0: uh, experiments
1: or uh, tests yeah. on so, one drop of blood. Yeah, block.
0: her name was Elizabeth Holmes. Um, and basically she yes. had this startup that was one stage I think estimated to be worth 8 billion and she said yeah she could detect future cancers, future diseases just using one drop of blood but it turned out it was pretty much impossible and she's currently go on trial now for fraud frauding investors so yeah Yeah. there's a documentary there's a documentary if you want to learn more it's about called Uh, Out for Blood in Silicon Valley, the story of Elizabeth Holmes. But this is not about her. This is not about her. I saw this headline and I'm going to read it out the headline.
1: New blood test detects five types of cancer years before standard diagnosis. And I was like, hold on a second. I was like, this is like, uh, uh, immediately I had like a bell ringing in my head. Is this like, is this some sort of another scam? But uh, the thing was published in Nature Communication. So you have some sort of validity to it. And uh, basically, uh, the test uh, found cancer in 91% of people who showed no symptoms when the blood sample was collected, but were diagnosed one to four years later with stomach, esophageal, colon, lung or liver cancer. So there, there, there is some uh, validity to it. And uh, technique. Uh, developed over a decade and is uh, designed to detect a- asymptomatic disease based on a biological process called DNA methylation analysis. So basically you look at the DNA methylation and this is how you can predict uh, according to this news headline certain types of cancers okay. coming up in the future. So um, yeah I thought that was a uh, that was interesting. That's that's an interesting science. Looking forward, you know, developing new techniques, utilizing what we learned about uh, biological processes uh, down to the level of uh, DNA methylation, and uh, and how we can utilize this to kind of progress well-being of people. I think this is a uh, this is important, and this is why we do science to kind of have this kind of yeah, yeah. breakthrough. Well, moments.
0: hopefully, something might come of it. Um, I'm still I I'm very skeptical of yeah, hopefully something might come. Well, y- you are not getting published in Nature Communication
1: uh, based on speculations, you know, if they if they predicted cancers and the people developed cancers in 91% yeah. of people.
0: Well, hope I'm uh, yeah, I'm hopeful. So, um but until I I see yeah. these headlines so much. Unless it's actually being used in me, I would not believe wide, I really um yeah will remain unconvinced okay you're gonna yeah. remain skeptical i guess w- it's your second nature <laughs> at this point well i did create a podcast based on being skeptical so yeah
1: <laughs> that's very true yeah man so i think that uh that's all i have from the from the scientific news there's obviously much more um, to cover but i don't think i want I, I don't no. think the other one i don't think important. we should not waste too so much more time uh, i think because we're
0: time. over half an hour now yeah
1: yeah but i i'm <laughs> sure people enjoy listening to us hopefully so that's no problem
0: yeah okay do you want to
1: do you want to walk me through your my headline, uh, my headline drug story. story first yeah um your headline story Put some uh, put some light on the Ramdamevizir. Ram vizier I'm Ramdesivir. I can mispronounce things. I don't care. Don't worry.
0: I've like spelt it wrong. I've remdesivir. saved it in my document. Okay. And I've spelt it wrong and everything. So don't worry.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm writing this down in the phonetic remdesivir. version. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: So for today, I'm going to talk about the drug mm-hmm. Um It's currently now being used as a drug uh, in treating. COVID-19 I think this seems to be my speciality topic I've talked about hydroxychloroquine last week and remdesivir but uh yeah I just think this was an interesting thing to discuss especially on skeptically inclined yeah where I'm skeptical of remdesivir <laughs> so um what is remdesivir for those who don't know which I'd say is a lot okay let me guess um, let me guess let me guess is this uh, an antiviral drug yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. Actually, before I started um I seen that Mel Gibson had got coronavirus and he had been treated with remdesivir. So, yeah, it's been treated by to celebrities and okay, must must
1: be must be legit now.
0: So, uh yes, it's an antiviral um and basically it acts as an analog. To, it acts as an analog to a nucleotide. So basically it acts similar to the nucleotides which are the basic blocks of DNA. Mm-hmm. Um and what it does is it interferes with the action of RNA polymerase, which is Im- important for the replication of the coronavirus. Okay. Uh, and it helps uh, reduce the production of the viral RNA. Okay. And basically, yeah, it arrests the RNA synthesis after it's incorporation. So b- so, so basically, this the cell has to get infected first and get to the stage
1: where it's ready to replicate. And this is where the drug comes into action
0: um no it, it it doesn't actually need to infect i think it will it'll affect the virus either way um okay without it even being in the cell like it just in, interfec- interferes with the rna polymerase mm-hmm. that the virus uses to replicate so okay. that's all it kind of is used for mm-hmm. so remdesivir was issued with an emergency use authorization by the Food and Drug Authority in America on the 1st of May to treat COVID-19 in response to preliminary results that were made available. What's, what, um, were, what were the preliminary re- uh, results? I will get into that. Okay, Don't worry. <laughs> um, so the, it had to use an emergency use because remdesivir has never been FDA approved to treat any conditions previous to this. Um, but now doctors can give it to any patients hospitalized with severe COVID-19. Uh, and since this emergency use authorization the you can guess what happened the u.s has stockpiled the drug leaving minimal amounts for europe or the rest of the world but i don't think anyone's really that surprised considering it happened with hydroxychloroquine it's exactly the same thing happening over again
1: yeah behavior uh, from the like perspective of behavior we can't
0: really ever work together to combat anything it's no it's all for me yeah so where did remdesivir even come about so it was always considered an investigational drug Mm -hmm. which means they were investigating it to treat loads of different diseases right it had originally been used to potentially treat hepatitis before being touted as a possible treatment for ebola oh um but so it yeah, has n- been it
1: has been around the around the shop for a long time then
0: yeah okay. yeah and it had been shown to be effective against SARS and MERS but again this was using cell based studies mm. and animals and not human ones right and this was already we had talked about this was done already with hydroxychloroquine mm-hmm. it was promising in animals and cells based studies but not in humans um but it's never shown any previous clinical success, so that's why it's just kind of unusual. Why it's not unusual? It's just uh, when it's never been used before, and then suddenly it becomes perfect for this right. disease. You just always have to be a bit skeptical. Yeah, it kind of a- another miracle drug, perhaps. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I just before I want to say that it's always dangerous to stockpile antivirals because this was actually done previously. With another antiviral known as Tamiflu. I wonder if any of our listeners know about this. Uh, I don't know about this. Mid- <laughs> Sorry? I don't even know about this. Yeah, I didn't know about this, but it was in the mid-2000s. The government spent billion stockpiling this. um, And then it actually, eventually on the release of clinical trial data, it was shown to have a little effect in managing or preventing the flu. So, so I was thinking, was it the N1H1? No, 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 I don't think it was that. Okay. I don't exactly know what flu, but I think it might have been. I d- it might have been um or avian flu, avian or bird flu. flu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So, history is this, is this another case of history repeating itself? <laughs> we will see. Okay. So, <clears throat> the British Medical Journal or BMJ had written an <laughs> article showing that experts criticised the company producing the drug this company is known as gilead or G- i don't know how they pronounce is it gilead or gilead sciences okay. o- obviously our pronunciation is not important in this podcast <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly. you just have to roll with us <laughs> yeah exactly please don't spam saying it's pronounced <laughs> whatever um yeah so i'm just going to say gilead sciences mm-hmm. um and it just the CEO is called Daniel O'Day. I was like, wow, could it, he's American, but I was like, wow, it sounds like, could it be more Irish? Yeah, yeah. Um, but anyways, the, so they criticized the company for saying it can reduce the death rates for patients with COVID-19 um, because they thought the research was intrinsically flawed and they claimed the benefits are overhyped and have been inappropriately promoted so yeah uh w- but so they, before uh, before i go into what the story was about just for our listeners to know and to know about company sponsored trials they frequently stop the trial early when they got positive results because that's all they want um and they often have unsuccessful blinding because they they are looking for the results of what the drug is doing so to be fully blind you should know you shouldn't. You shouldn't know what tr- what group the drug is in and what results it's giving until the end of the study and then you do the unblinding. But you don't do it earlier on. But often they'll stop mm-hmm. the trial early and that means they're prematurely unblinding the results. And often as well, they have large loss to follow up because they don't really, they're like, we got the result now, we don't really care about following up long term. Um, but traditionally you have
1: to go through is it three phases of clinical trials?
0: Yeah, but uh so yeah, it takes this... a long time. Yeah, okay. Um and in in this and in the case of corona, they're definitely want to get this stuff out early. Yeah. 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 So, um and this exactly happened with their study. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it suggested that remdesivir shortened the time to recovery by about 4 days. This study has proven to be controversial since it's been published. Um, again, it was stopped early. It had incomplete blinding and provided only preliminary results with only, no. 50, with only 15% of patients having their outcome determined at the specified endpoint of 28 days. And that got published? This got published, yeah. Um, going on? And another concern was that they changed the endpoint shortly before publication. And this was apparently before the unblinding of any results. So, what this means is that they had a specified endpoint. So, they were saying, okay, we're going to check. They had said originally the primary outcome was the time to recovery. So, the primary outcome of the trial was initially defined as the difference in the clinical status defined by an A category uh, scale. So, yeah, they wanted to see how many of the patients on the drug versus the control would need mm-hmm. to get ventilated, would need to go to ICU, would uh, need high-flow oxygen. Um, mm-hmm. And then they decided to change that um, to huh. more to to length of stay in the hospital, basically, um, which is kind of suspicious because they should have been blinded. They shouldn't have known. And what was
1: that th- change introduced as the study was going on? Yeah yeah okay well so, that's obviously wrong
0: yeah so that's kind of unusual yeah and Bec- because basically f- basically you manipulate and you're trying to
1: manipulate your results to get the uh, desirable outcome which is on a, yeah. this is not how you do science
0: so they said the change in the primary outcome was made in response to evolving information external to the trial Indicating that COVID may, nineteen may have been a more protracted course than previously appreciated, but this is the reason they gave. Then they should scratch the sh- scratch the study,
1: design the new, and design the yeah. new study. Like you can't, because this is you can use that excuse for everything, and you can yeah. you can just manipulate outcomes of everything. It's like yeah. if you, if it doesn't work, you stop it. You you develop a new methodology new outline for it uh, for that for that for that study and you and you have to start from scratch you can't you can't just yeah it just doesn't work that the
0: way they did it so one other interesting thing i found about this paper was the placebo was just uh saline uh but they were, it was weird because uh the patients that just got placebo or saline had more adverse events than patients that were taking remdesivir which i thought was kind of unusual because i thought it'd be at least the opposite that maybe remdesivir might have had a bit more adverse events but there was a better outcomes for the patient
1: well maybe it was just a natural progression of the of the disease for people who got saline you know with the with the study that is kind of a design is all over the place it's kind of hard to even speculate what is what because you you're literally losing. the the bigger context of what is going on inside the body with so many changes and changes to what should be monitored and what should be left out. And yeah. Yeah. Well, it said here,
0: it said here 49 patients had remdesivir treatment discontinued before day 10 because of an adverse event or serious adverse event other than death. Whereas with the placebo patients, 53 discontinued placebo before day 10. Because of an adverse event or a serious adverse event, um, so I just thought that was unusual. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah. Well, it. Yeah, the whole thing sounds a little bit weird. And, oh wait, so you, yeah. I, and if you looked at the paper as well, they did a uh, a chart to show the proportion of recovered versus days um, in the mm-hmm. different types of patients, and. It was interesting, in patients that received mechanical ventilation, um, the placebo actually had a higher proportion recovered than remdesivir. But remdesivir actually had better recovery in less severe patients, it seemed. But patients who actually needed quite mechanical ventilation was much higher.
1: Okay, so perhaps now you have room to speculate that the progression of disease Dictates the effectiveness of the drug. Yeah. Well, th- this is not confirmed by any means. No, and we are not confirming this. But now you can say that well, if the patient is at this and this stage of disease, it's this is the time that is most optimal to administer this and this drug. You know, you can you can make that speculation now, but it's very hard based on on the on the study that you're picturing right now. Yeah, this, which is basically really poor.
0: Um, and the last thing I wanted to make point I want to make about this paper was. They, their safety outcomes was just really, they didn't really go into detail, which is what I wanted to see because mm. I, I'm I if it did have a better improvement for patients, I was like, that's great. But I was just thinking, I wonder was there out, severe side effects or anything? And they didn't really have a nice table usually to detail that. Um, and the other thing they were saying was there was 28 res- serious respiratory failure events in the remdesivir group and 42 mm-hmm. in the placebo group. So there was 42 they were attributing serious respiratory failure events to the placebo um which I was thinking uh, would it not just be the co- like I don't know why they looked at respiratory failure events in a, a disease that causes respiratory failure like how do they know the f- how do they know it- what causes is causing the failure how do they know it's I think- the drug
1: uh, yeah, but I don't... Yeah, I don't know how did they draw that conclusion. Very peculiar. And they still got the New England Journal of Medicine.
0: Yeah, I, I just don't understand why they looked at respiratory failure. And it will obviously be higher in the placebo group. Like, all you're doing is treating them with saline. So, like, but, it's... But
1: did they... So the patients got the drug or placebo, doesn't matter. And as they were... as. After they received the drug, some of them uh, went into this respiratory failure in both groups, or did they go into the respiratory failure and then they received the drug?
0: No, no. This was when they were admitted into the hospital. They were they were assigned to either get the placebo or the the remdesivir. And the
1: respiratory f- and the respiratory failure followed the. Uh, yeah, this was just basically followed. as okay. they
0: track monitored the patient um as it went along mm. so um yeah i just thought like why would you bother look at this metric because i just didn't think it was useful um so yeah well you want
1: to you want to stop people progressing to this uh severe stage of covid-19 right so you like you don't want anyone to get to the point where they where they enter this acute You don't want anyone uh, to, you don't want to let anyone to enter this uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome, because this is the, I think this is the final most severe state in COVID-19. So like it makes, it would make sense to look at it and see if people who were administered the drug, uh, if the progression of the disease could be halted versus the placebo. Yeah. In case, if if they were looking from that perspective, but. Uh, you said thirty-six patients on the drug went into this final stage versus forty something in the placebo group, right? I think I think you said it was, said it was
0: twenty-eight serious respiratory failure events in the Reptisivir group and forty-two mm-hmm. in the placebo group.
1: Is, uh, did they mention is that was that statistically significant difference or or not?
0: They don't mention it being statistically significant. Mm. So. Okay,
1: it doesn't. Well, it's, it's a, I don't know, well, we can quickly run, I don't know what statistics yep. they use, but yeah. maybe we can
0: quickly run T-test t or something like that. But uh, they mentioned in the discussion as well, even though the trial was ongoing, the Data and Safety Monitoring Board made the recommendation to unblind the results and tell the, the team, who subsequently decided to make the results public. But I just, I don't understand why they decided to do this um, halfway through yeah
1: I don't uh, well it's the certain decisions have been made and like you know we can only speculate on the nature of it there was
0: another trial so sorry I know we went into a lot of detail into that paper but I just because I had gone through it they had another paper Gilead Sciences did another study with a larger population and they said that intravenous remdesivir reduced mortality by 62% compared with standard treatment um Mm -hmm. But And it showed that 7.6% of COVID-19 patients treated with the drug died compared with 12.5% of control patients. However, this study, again, it compared the treatment and non-treatment groups in different cohorts. So this was something I had mentioned previously in my hydroxychloroquine. So just to be clear for people out there, when you're doing a randomized trial, you want to make sure that it's the patients you randomly assign them in the same way uh you don't just look for patients in the control group who didn't get the drug and then try and make comparisons because there's so much variability going on yeah um the control group or the standard they were standard of care so this was just how the normal covid patients would be treated they got other drugs they got oxygen so there was so much other confounding data that could influence the results um so like it the patients who received the drug were compared to a historical group of more than 800 patients on standard of care so it's not comparing like to like it's comparing nearly apples to oranges um,
1: and it's, and it's not that, e- and you can't, you know, when you're saying that there are also some confounding effect, people being on different antibiotics or oxygen and stuff like that, you know, like y- you have to guys understand, like, it's not so easy just to stop ongoing treatment for a patient just so we can have the ideal control, uh, yeah control, you know, like you can't just like, it's ethically immoral to refuse someone a treatment just to get. A nice, uh, nice control control group. So, like all of these things are really tricky, but it basically comes down to uh, a genuine, uh, proper design of the study, and which is obviously lacking in this paper that Evan has highlighted. You want to
0: basically have two sets of patients, two sets of patients that are identical as possible, and one gets the control and one gets the the drug, and you want to have Mm -hmm. them as matched as possible for the control and for the drug because you want to just have that any effect is due to the drug and not because of anything else that's why you want to randomize that's why you want to look at the same kind of cohort you don't want to just take random cohort from anywhere in the world and be like oh this drug is better than that one Um,
1: you want to get the same gender the same age uh, probably lifestyle if your if your test subject group doesn't smoke you don't want your control To be like heavy smokers and vice versa.
0: This professor of medicine and epidemiology. His name is Martin Landry. He works at University of Oxford. And he was involved in that recovery trial. Which dexamethasone. Which I mentioned previously. And Mm -hmm. he said it's just an association. Comparing two rather different groups of patients. And it was difficult to draw any conclusions. About the effect of the drug on survival. So they still need to do a large randomized control trial which has still not been done. Um, and these two papers as well were done by the company. There was actually another paper done by a Chinese, Chinese research team, which wasn't mm-hmm. sponsored by the company, and they found there was no difference. They so, no difference. yeah, it's
1: just... It's, it's hard to not believe that when the company sponsors uh, a study, especially such an important study in times like this, that there is some incentive behind it for trying to push yeah. it out. It's very yeah, but I'm sure there are companies out there who are very honest and do the and do the do the right job.
0: Yeah, like I w- I hope it's effective, but it's just the way that the papers have gone about it is yeah. just seems a bit weird. Um, is this paper still available, Evan? The one yeah, I have New a link in the description. Um, okay. Would you recommend uh, reading it? Yeah, if people want to read it, this it's just, it's just useful to kind of think critically, see what you mm. think. Um, the final point I was going to make like when it was the the mainstream media was quick to report the results again this company Gillard was reporting it through press releases not through the papers uh, and yeah the mainstream media just pounced on it and seen that oh it, it's effective we have a drug and it's share price rose 3% after an announcement <laughs> and it said that it would charge health systems around 2,090 euro for a five-day course to how much Two thousand? how much so gilead has set a price of 430 euro per vial of remdesivir with a five-day okay. course using six vials equating to approximately just under 2,600 euro per patient like compare that to dex- dexamethasone which i had mentioned previously yeah. this Is super expensive
1: uh, if i just can say something about the price of the uh, remdesivir and how expensive it is and if you think about it what sort of uh communities are being affected most by the uh covid 19 is the is the communities coming from the less than uh privileged circumstances so they definitely don't have uh don't have the money to get that treatment oh regardless. yeah yeah i i don't you know? think
0: they w like especially in america where health system is so expensive like yeah um it's really difficult but they actually had estimated the production of the drug is just under one dollar a day um so it's well their the price increase is insane
1: there is no money in research but there's loads of money in pharma and
0: the last thing i wanted to say was uh we know we all love anthony fauci and how he's like doing great trying to do his best job in america well he 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 can't throw a ball for his shit like even if his life depends (laughs) on it i didn't see that but he yeah he's a u.s coronavirus expert but he didn't even read the paper because he described it he had said it was clear-cut significant positive effect in diminishing time to recovery Uh, and so basically it set the stage for optimism and confirmation bias because you're like oh he said it so it's definitely going to be true and i don't think people were really skeptical and read the paper mm-hmm. and seen that wait maybe what they did in the design of the study wasn't that great so he basically was on board at yeah, the start yeah yeah okay, he well. thought it was gr- like, he thought it was uh a great not he didn't say great he just thought it was clear cut which i do not think it was clear cut at all <laughs> maybe he just cut the corners and you know didn't read it Maybe, maybe he's under a lot of pressure to come up with something for Trump. I'm sure. So, yeah, I know I've been shitting on America a lot in this so far, but it's just so it's just you make it hard not to. (laughs) Seriously, Um, sorry,
1: but not sorry. Yeah,
0: so sorry for all (laughs) you American audience, if we have any. Uh, we do. I checked. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, that's just the final points I wanted to make the closing points i just wanted to make about the whole thing is we need to make sure that it's not coming out in press reports that it's true studies that are peer-reviewed and even though and this was peer-reviewed that people are actually being skeptical and look at the design and not taking it as face value um mm. and again stockpiling drugs that on a very not clear-cut paper Uh, is something that shouldn't be done. So I'm going to just... It'd be interesting to see how it goes. Um, I think it will be used for the rest of this duration, but I'd be interested to see if anything does come out that, oh, it was... The paper was... When they finally... Because this was only... uh, Because they only showed 15% of patients, so it's still only a provisional paper. So they still have to publish the whole um results. So I'll be interested. If they see. ever will. If they ever do, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So um, um yeah.
1: Okay. Well thanks for another batch of bad news, Evan. Yeah. Uh perhaps uh on the next encounter you can bring something more positive to the table. Well I'm trying to be uh,
0: skeptical. <laughs> I know, I know, But next time just... I want to talk about um, um so a vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, the M mm-hmm. RNA vaccine, I want to look okay. into that paper. And discuss so some s- of the points from that. So okay. we will you're see how that field. goes.
1: Okay, so you're gonna step into my field of uh, mRNA. Okay, yeah, interesting. Uh, can you mention the title of that paper? Because I don't think you did, or maybe you did, and I wasn't listening. Oh, the paper that uh, I was uh, discussing. Yeah, yeah. So the p-
0: the paper I was discussing was Remdesivir for the treatment of COVID-19 preliminary report. So this is what I um, okay. was reading. This, okay, so
1: for anyone who would want to um, have a look at it, yeah. but of course the, there will be links uh, to find uh, references. Yeah. I'm gonna... Okay, so uh, thank you for this. Uh, uh, now I don't believe anything that comes out of uh, pharmaceutical companies, thanks to you. And uh, in return, I'm gonna take you on a beautiful journey across the immune system. <laughs> So, I have read three beautiful papers. One comes from The Cell, the other one is from Science Immunology, and the last one is from Nature. So, wow. all three high papers.
0: You were doing a lot of work. Uh,
1: they were actually very interesting. I was afraid of The Cell uh, paper because they always like put so much into it, uh, but it was actually a pleasant read, and I was pleasantly surprised to understand a good bit of it, so I didn't have to Google that many things. Uh, but Evan, I have a question for you because you are in the immunology. You work in us in the immunology lab, and uh, can you tell me something about immune system? What like what is it? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I hope the immune system is meant to prevent you from getting infections and okay. protect you from yeah yeah
1: and how is it can you divide it
0: oh yeah you so you have your innate immune system and your adaptive, adaptive. immune system so your innate okay. is just things that are just built in that prevent you from getting infection so like mm-hmm. sweat your skin skin is kind of yeah. acidic so stops yeah you know, bacteria trying to go on your skin mm. or whatever then your adaptive is basically how your body kind of when it when it realizes there's an infection, it kind of rapid. It's when it realizes it learns, there's an right? infection, it helps, uh, target it really specifically and destroying it very much more effectively than right. than it so than system Basically. could.
1: Bas- yeah, so basically, that's, that's, that's what I was expecting from you. So today, so you guys know now we have innate and the adaptive immune system. And we're going to focus on the adaptive immune system. And I'm going to keep grilling Evan for questions. <laughs> so <laughs> Evan, if I'm uh, <laughs> uh, can you tell me what sort of cells we have in the adaptive immune system?
0: So we have our t- the main one, the main players. Well, the T cell, B cells. Mm-hmm. And no, that's not that one. I think well, they're I think, the two main ones, isn't yeah, it? Yeah,
1: I think yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I was expecting from you. So, so now we have the T cells, guys. So, just so to just to make it even simpler, like if you imagine the adaptive immune system, these are the guys that are gonna take their time, learn about the infection, and then strike precise precise strikes. And within the group of the adaptive immune system, we have the T cells, and T cells are unbelievable. We can we can further stratify them into TH1 cells, TH two cells and TH17 cells. and uh, the way and I'm gonna and Evan, please you 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 fact check me on this one, okay, okay. and then uh, the way the T cells learns about infection it it doesn't directly face it face to face. It uses this kind of uh this another antenna that we called MHC and it goes up to the MHC, and if you can imagine it, it starts shaking it hand, and through the handshake, it recognizes what is wrong, and what am I looking for. So, so basically, that's what it is, and now we have two different types of handshakes. We have the MHC class 2, which shake hands with the, uh, the CD4 cells, and we have MHC class 1 handshake that shakes hands Hence, with a CD8 positive cells. And for you guys who don't know immunology, this is as much you need to know. For guys who are fluent in terms of immunology, you know what are, what are the differences. So I won't get into, into that. Uh, these three papers looked into how the t cells respond to the infection to the sars-cov-2 what types of t cells are being produced which types of t, t cells are allowed to proliferate and expand uh, when encountering the sars-cov-2 they also looked into the things like whether the people who have never came across the virus can have some sort of adaptive immunity already and these 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 things are fascinating because there is a there is a thought going on that Perhaps the immune, the response of the immune system depends on the stage of the uh, infection. So we, we know that people can react to COVID-19 from being asymptomatic to having the flu-like symptoms, then developing the severe pneumonia. And the, and the last stage is the acute respiratory distress syndrome. And, you know, in the, in the case, I think this is the case when the ventilation comes in play. I wish we had like an MD on the speed dial so we could confirm all of these things, but <laughs> We don't have one yet. So, okay, so some people could be thinking like, okay, but what about the antibodies? I have the antibodies, I'm sorted. Well, I think the last on the last episode, we showed that this is not quite the case. We don't, really, we don't really know much about the antibodies, except for the fact that we could measure them. If someone's going to ask you guys, why do we need to study immune system in, in, in response to SARS-CoV-2, think about it this way. Understanding the immune system would help us to fine-tune development of vaccines. We don't want to just uh, throw out vaccine out there that we think we're going to work. We want to understand how the immune system works against COVID-19 so we can fine-tune our vaccine to replicate this mechanism. We want to know what aspects of the immune system are initiated at what stages of the disease. I I already mentioned that. Studying the immune system would also help to estimate the the epidemiological calibration. So I think this was showed in the Spanish paper last time when they when they actually look at the immune response to kind of trace and mark how different regions of Spain responded to the to the infection. Can
0: I can I stop you? Mm-hmm. Can I stop It sounds like I'm in a lecture. Okay. Okay.
1: Was, I'm 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 done with now. I'm done with this and I get into the I get into the paper. So how so the first thing uh so these all three papers were overlapping each other. Uh, so they did similar things. So that's what I think it brings value because there's not like a single study that shows something. All of these three studies uh, confirmed one one or the other thing. The first thing that the guys did was to quantify the CD4 and CD8 cells because they wanted to have a better understanding. Is both of these cells being activated uh, upon uh, SARS-CoV two, or is it only one type of of the cells being activated? So did they you tell the people group.
0: as well, like what's the difference between CD four and CD eight?
1: Okay, well, so CD eight cells are are des- designed to recognize the target and and kill it, and uh, CD four positive T cells are more kind of uh, the kind of enhanced. The reaction of other immune cells. They're like the the, the bridge that uh, allows more like cells brain. to. Yeah, exactly. So it's important to know what type of T cells is responsive uh, to the infection. So they they collect each 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 of these three studies. They they collected group of people that has recovered from uh, from COVID nineteen, and they took their blood. So they collected the uh, the cells that w- that were in the blood. So now we have the cells, but like how um, how we gonna we, we can't we can't expose people again to the virus. So what they did is they created a viral peptide, and you can do this and you can do this in both ways. You can either use uh, immune epitope databases that are available online, and use bioinformatics to pick and develop appropriate uh, epitopes that will trigger the T cells based on the SARS-CoV-2 data uh, knowledge we have. Or the other way to do it is just look at the genome of the uh, of the SARS-CoV two and just blindly take pieces that are responsible for coding certain proteins and just and just and just replicate that and create synthetic parts of proteins. So th- these are these two methods were used. So one is kind of more uh, prediction based, and the other one is just we take we take the part of the virus and uh, and we just gonna synth- synthet- synthetically produce and see if it works.
0: So, so the so basically just to like even explain it even more basic, they just want to get some kind of peptide, which is like a protein. They want to see something that's similar to COVID nineteen to simulate it to see if this would produce a reaction in the T cells.
1: Exactly. So the big player in the in the vaccine talk is the spike protein. Is that right, Evan? I think it is. Yeah. I think everybody's paying attention to the, the spike ACE protein.
0: Or was it how, what's ace again i think angiotensin
1: converting enzyme 2 yes yeah. this is the um uh the binding the molecule, receptor for it. the binding receptor yes so just to make things more interesting these uh, these guys thought ahead of it so they uh, when they were developing the the peptides or the uh, for the to Activate the T cells. They create this this megapoles because you have loads of loads of small peptide molecules, and you just pull them all together rather than testing one at a time. It's just more it's just more efficient that way. But they kept the spike protein peptide separate from every other peptide pool because they just wanted to see what is the response to the spike protein on its own. Two out of three studies did that way. The study that came from Nature didn't didn't investigate the spike protein at all. Uh, but this is this is not really important at this at this point so let me tell you what were the results of uh, quantification and differentiation between the CD4 and CD8 so basically two studies concluded that the uh, megapools of spike proteins produced complete activation of, of CD4 T cells in recovered COVID-19 patients but also there was a 100% activation of CD4 positive T cells from non-spike protein epitopes. So, all of the spike proteins uh, peptides activated the CD4 cells, but also you have these other proteins that are able that theoretically are able to activate CD4 cells, and when they tested them, they in fact did that as well. The other the other peptides and are as effective in activating CD4 cells as the spike protein.
0: Well, what does that mean? This can
1: mean that producing vaccine that is solely based on the spike protein does not reflect the exact environment that's going on during the infection because it's there are multiple other uh, peptides on the virus that are able to activate cd4 cells not only the spike proteins and in the ideal environment in the ideal vaccine you want the whole repertoire of cells uh, uh, activated to fight the infection so basically, that's what it means. And then, so basically, uh, the
0: spike protein is too non, non-descript or non-specific to well, trigger does... an immune response. Like, uh, the immune response can be triggered by a lot of different proteins, anyways.
1: Uh, well, it's not that you pick one or the other. You want to complement it, right? So, if you could develop a vaccine that also looks at the other other peptides that are able to activate CD4. Uh, you would. Why wouldn't you want to complement that rather than focusing on the narrow on the narrow window of only spike protein activated T cells? You leave out this whole gamma of other of other T cells that can be activated, but they're but they are not activated by the vaccine. Yeah, it's not a matter of picking one over the other. It's it's just a matter of showing that. Preferably, we would want all of the CD4 T cells to be activated and not only fraction that is res- responsive to the spike protein. <clears throat> and then uh, I saw also there was a talk about whether they are TH1 or TH2 cells, and these studies confirm that the the phenotype of the T cells is the TH1 cells. And basically, the difference between TH1 and TH2 it's the it's the uh, it's the profile of cytokines secreted by uh, by one or by two. In the aspect of coronavirus, these are the TH1 cells that being predominantly all exclusively activated and they the one of the main things that they secrete is interferon gamma which is like very uh pro inflammatory with this well it is very good at enhancing other uh, prim- uh other immune cells to attack uh, whereas the th2 kind of is more direct th2 profile it's kind of one of its main function i think is uh is the activation of IgE antibodies responsible in the um, allergies. But this is another kind of a speck of knowledge put Th- in that... Th2
0: as well is more for it- anti-inflammatory, isn't it? Or no? I No, I'm getting confused. That's another thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the T-Rex, I think.
0: But yeah, so it's Th1 uh,
1: phenotype and the CD4 cells are activated by spike protein. But are not limited to spike protein only. Well, what about what about the CD8 cells? These are the the cells that are going for the kill. That's uh, that they, they they want to they want to murder murder the infected cells. They're gonna take them out. They're gonna take them out. Uh, they show the results show that the CD8 T cells are also activated, but not to the same extent as the CD4 CD4 positive cells. So the CD4 are like the the main uh, group of T cells that is being activated, but it's true that patients do produce the uh, interferon gamma-producing specific CD8 cells. So this is just like you know another another bit of um, of understanding how the immune system uh, works. And interestingly, the spike proteins are also capable of activating the uh, CD8-positive cells. So maybe you know when you have that vaccine coming in. You're not only activating the, the cells that are designed to, uh, to kind of uh, to hype up the other cells to attack, but you also activate the, 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 tox- the cytotoxic cells. So the, the CD8 cells, which are toxic to other cells. Yeah. The, also, another interesting thing that I found in this paper was the correlation between the activation of CD4 cells and the responses in the IgG antibodies titers they showed that uh, the cd4 cells specific for spike protein as they were as they were increasing in the same time the igg titers were in, I- increasing so was, uh, this was actually showed in the um, in the cell journal and another study uh, that i've read one of the three that i read showed uh, actually sh- confirmed this from the other way around they, sh- they found evidence for a, a direct negative correlation between viral loads and the IgE and the viral loads and the CD4. So basically, the more CD4, the more IgG, the less virus you get. This is, oh, this okay. is so, so they kind of show the same thing from the other perspective, which is reassuring because you don't, you don't want to base your entire opinion on one study done on the couple of recovered patients. Yeah. Like if you get another study coming out that kind of confirms your results from like a different angle. Of different perspective then like you know that you're onto something and another thing that is also interesting that they looked into it it was a a, a cytokine storm have you heard about cytokine storm evan yes yes so uh
0: it's yeah. just basically how your body just goes into overdrive your immune system goes into overdrive when it can't really clear the infection and exactly this is why i think the drugs i've been talking about the steroids have been shown to be effective because it's stopping your body from going out of control so what did you find about the whole cytokine so, storm? yeah so this is interesting right because as you said um if, you, if your body cannot
1: deal with the infection the cytokines were just like a, a chemical text messages that basically scream we're fucked we need help they being like continuously released the text messages are being released, so the immune system sends more soldiers to fight and basically your body at some point it starts damaging itself because it's everything is out of control.
0: Yeah. Everything everything is out of control. In this circumstance it's your lungs, it just starts to damage them. Exactly. You just you just don't for it. So
1: because they had like a such a small pool of patients to pull from, they were very honest and they said on the on the basis of the of the people we have tested, we can't predict, uh, we can't we can't show a- anything in terms of cytokines as a group, because it's just it's too little and it's just you know there is no point even trying to draw some sort of association. But they did detected cytokines from the uh, pr- pr- secreted by the CD4 cell, CD8, the uh, TH17. But when they quantify them, it was predominantly uh, CD4 cytokines. So this is the kind of, uh, this is what they predicted. But what they were aiming for is to see whether they can see profiles or group of cytokines that would correlate to certain stages of disease that would maybe, through measuring of the cytokines, they'd be able to assess whether the patient is entering more severe stage of a, of a disease and stuff like that. But this was uh, this was futile. This, this, they, they couldn't prove anything yeah. like that. What they were able to prove, it's that in the, on the case-by-case basis, they look at the cytokine secretion. So they, they measured, they had plasma of deceased patients who died uh, because of the COVID-19. They measured the cytokines already present in the plasma, and they they said that on the case by case basis in the people who died from COVID 19, in all of them they they saw increased interleukin six. And inside the paper they draw your attention to the reference where they show when there's some other research paper shows that interleukin six has been previously associated with kind of uh, long uh, with a long dysfunction that could lead to some. Um, to some severe, uh, severe consequences, such as is dead. But this is like very speculative. This is like, yeah. you know, you, you, yeah, you can't just throw one reference from some other paper and try to make these big associations, but they were very, again, the authors were very honest saying that this obviously needs more in-depth investigation, but th- we just want to report on what we see. So uh, I think this is uh, this is something interesting. Maybe 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 that's a lead to be followed, and maybe you can use cytokines to predict. Maybe you can use the secretion of cytokines to predict what stage of the disease patients are, or what stage but of the they disease they fi- might be coming in. But they didn't. couldn't find that. In.
0: But they didn't find that in this paper.
1: No, th- the only thing they found is that the interleukin six, the the quantities of interleukin six was elevated in all of the deceased patients uh, versus the not deceased, all the healthy controls. Well.
0: <laughs> yeah i i could tell you that i think like obviously your il6 is going to be increased but that could be yeah, increased th- because that's... of anything
1: i know but that's but they also show in this reference to kind of yeah. back up the funding yeah. that it has been observed before and it's maybe maybe it's not completely uh circumstantial maybe it's not completely just a thing maybe there is something to be followed you know i think like as a scientist i think you have to keep an eye out for things that could stand out and you should follow them so i think this is a because if you're just gonna be kind of a, too uh, skeptical about everything then you might then you're gonna end up not doing anything because you're gonna be like well i don't think this is this so you, like i think you should follow every lead and i think they uh this is one of the leads that should be further
0: followed further i know shouldn't I, like i, I put get money that. on it no i get that but i just was i just think to throw out a pro-inflammatory cytokine that's increased in a lot of autoimmune diseases infections and just to go oh maybe we could measure that that could be a reason to show that cytokine that cytokine being increased could be could be a reflection of disease severity which i would be just like yeah i would think so too i don't think yeah i i know i'm i'm being very harsh but well, I would just, I'm just thinking it from a poorly, from a clinical diagnostic point where you could e- implement it easily into a lab, you wanna be something that's specific, that tells you that something's gonna reflect disease severity, not something that maybe isn't very specific. True, but this is a small study,
1: yeah, not based on the huge group of people. And they I think they're looking for leads. I think they just I think they're trying to understand the immune system. And and I think they're trying to understand the immune system from the perspective of COVID-19. And they found something that has been previously reported in the literature. And you know, they just they're not like they not saying like this is it, this is what's happening. They're saying, hey, look, we, we observe this. Perhaps there is a room to follow. Perhaps, perhaps there is a there is a reason to follow that lead. You know that might end up being nothing important, or might end up actually bringing some more light into the table. And they they are very humble in the way they write about this in the in the results section. So you know it's not like they being it's not like they saying they discovered America. <laughs> and the last point that I want to bring up is the pre-existing cross-reactive coronavirus-specific T cells. Yeah,
0: this is something so, I was kind of interested
1: to. Here. So I was I was really surprised to learn that there was um, not hundred percent, but a group of people uh, from the unexposed control group in both three uh, three papers that when their T cells were stimulated against the uh, uh, co- uh, SARS-CoV-2 peptides, they noticed that the cells start to expand, they start to proliferate. They start to release the uh, interferon gamma or the, the other cytokines, you know, and the first thing you think like, okay, wh- like what is going on? How how come these people uh, who have never been exposed to SARS-CoV-2 because the donors were recruited between 2015 and 2018. So way before the SARS-CoV-2 was on the radar, yeah. it was like, how come, how is this possible? Wait, as you people know, coronavirus is not only uh, SARS, MERS and uh, SARS-CoV-2. It's a uh, we are we actually all the common colds that we suffer from they are caused by uh, coronaviruses as well. So if you even uh, take the take the genome of the uh, SARS CoV 2, take, take the genome of SARS and of the four and the four viruses that cause common cold, you will be able to find certain homology or overlap between certain aspects of the genome between all of these. Um, Uh, seven or six different strains of virus and uh, the idea the the train of thought was that by chance if you develop immune response to that region that can overlap with uh, with SARS-CoV-2 then in theory you have a t-cells that will be able to recognize the same region on SARS-CoV-2
0: can i ask um uh, it was the peptides mm -hmm. like was it the spike protein or was it a collection? No, it was. It was actually.
1: Um, it actually, they weren't that responsive to yeah. the spike protein. They were mostly responsive to a group of protein called uh, non non structural proteins, and these are all the kind of proteins that are responsible for uh, viral replication, for unwinding of the DNA. So basically, if I could like be a little bit more specific the uh, the antigens they trace them back to helicases to polymerases to kind of a, a pro- yeah to basically to proteins that are more involved in the way the virus replicates itself or control the replication once uh, it's infect once the cell is infected Uh, versus to the uh, proteins on the surface of the uh, So these will be very common in other coronaviruses. Yeah, so see, this is where we enter this kind of uh, area of deliberation, because in two patients, they found the homology, the T-cells that were active in these patients, when they they look at the homology or overlap between the common cold coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2, there was a very little overlap. So, they were like, this is like, I don't think these cells could develop this responsiveness due to this particular fragment of the common cold virus. So, then they actually throw in another hypothesis to kind of uh, try to m- make some understanding out of this. And they say that there is a high chance or probability that there are more than we know coronavirus strains that readily jump from animal to human. And that can cause this activation of T-cells. Okay. So, so basically what could have happened is that there is a coronavirus strain that we don't know about, but it's co- capable of crossing the species and it's capable of activating T-cells. And, and in that scenario, this unidentified strain of, co- of coronavirus would have a certain homology between the, b- between the SARS-CoV-2. But this is, th- but because they, I think they had to come up with a, like an explanation because they couldn't, they couldn't understand why this, why this peptide caused activation of T cells where there was no homology between the common cold and the SARS CoV 2. So mm. po- hypothetically, th- that could be like a third player coming in that we haven't identified yet. And, um, and they also found out that people who were exposed to SARS uh, virus back in 2003, they still have circulating T cells that are able to mount the response both to the SARS coronavirus and SARS-CoV-2. So I think people who survived SARS have like the best yeah, immunity the best. against the, coro- against wow. the current uh, current virus. So, so like...
0: Um, like you know how they were saying like, oh, they're not sure if circulating antibodies were protective, but yet they're showing that mm. people from the like, SARS outbreak way mm. back when they still have immunity yeah. from it. So the, it just shows that the, you do carry immunity in other yes. ways apart from antibody. And and we shouldn't rely on antibodies because
1: antibodies only last in circulation two to three years whereas the they show that the T cells have a memory of seven seventeen years in circulation, so the, you you have you have your T cells seventeen years and they still are like ready ready to get activated as soon as they see, as soon as they see infection, whereas your antibodies will disappear after two to three years yeah um, so that's interesting as well can I ask so can I ask mm-hmm. as
0: well do they think that the reason that some people are more asymptomatic then mm-hmm. others could be potentially because they have already some kind of immunity because of these other yes. kind of coronaviruses so, that they might have been exposed to
1: that has been uh, that that is an uh, idea as well that should be uh, should be further elaborated and they do mention that in the discussions they also say that I try, i'm try, i'm going to try to phrase this very accessibly, but basically they're saying that you can have two different responses: you can have an immune response that's gonna go after the virus directly, or you can have an immune response that's gonna target the infected cell oh. and uh, i think I think there is um, they mentioned that in people who we, who we see as asymptomatic it could be the case that their immune system is targeted to destroy uh, an infected cell so as soon as the cell presents the epitopes on the mhc complex uh, this is as soon as it is destroyed and it doesn't give a chance for virus to replicate itself yeah and that's why that's why maybe there is a portion of uh, of people who is uh, who are I- asymptomatic because they there's not in because they, their immune system doesn't give them enough time Uh, doesn't give the virus enough time to 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 develop to the to develop symptoms whereas the other other response could be more directed at the virus itself and you know once the virus affects the cell and once the cell is burst bursts out to release to release another virus particles it doesn't release two or three it's you know it's a it's an avalanche of um, of new viral particles being released from one infected cell so I think that was really interesting. If, um, the immune response directed toward the infected cell is actually, it actually comes from the peptides from these non-structural proteins, from all of these kind of uh, proteins responsible for viral replication and management. These are being picked up and, and then the immune system destroyed, destroyed the cell. Where whereas you know the the, the spike protein and the uh, the nucleocapsid protein, the membrane protein, these are the proteins that are on the virus. So it's it's most effective for like the CD8 cells that uh, well not most for the antibodies to neutralize the viral particle. So yeah, so I think that was interesting to 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 come up with the idea why some people are asymptomatic and why some people are not asymptomatic.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is kind of yeah, so- uh... It's just something that has to be kind of looked into, like what, who is, who can, who becomes asymptomatic, why do they become asymptomatic, yeah, uh, compared Um, to why do other people? Is it just because they were previously exposed to coronavirus, or is it the way their immune cells are recognizing the virus? It's all kind of something that, kind of, it would be so, it would be so hard to study. This
1: kind of phenom- phenomena, because uh, like you would want to you would want to identify patients in the patient group suffering from coronavirus. You want to identify patients who already had suffered from SARS, or you would want to identify patients who you know that they already have some sort of T cell immunity due to the exposure to the common cold viruses. Yeah. But like, how can you identify, like once they have COVID, it's too late because then, you know, it's, it's too late. You can't, because these people are already infected, they mm-hmm. already start producing a new immune responses and everything is just big, big mash of mashed potatoes and it, it's too late. And you can't, you can't just identify people, confirm that they, that confirm that there is a healthy individual that has a, that has immune specific towards SARS-CoV-2 and then infect him with with the virus and see how it responds. Like this is you can't you can't do that.
0: No, but um, I suppose it's if only if you can get samples from patients before they got infected and then afterwards and look at and you just get clinical details like symptoms and all that. I think. I know. Of, but I think yeah, it's it's a very difficult ask. It is, but
1: yeah, you know, but I was I was happy reading these papers. Like there's another another bit of immune system responses that we understand a little bit better and I was actually super exciting diving into immunology and molecular immunology it kind of all of these all of these things start coming back to me as I was reading it yeah. and um, you know it's just it's a personal it's a moment of personal satisfaction because I did paid over 10 grand to know this and uh, <laughs> I am I am happy that this is coming back to me when I read stuff
0: you know more than you think. Think that's well for everyone to, yeah yeah to take on yeah. board as well
1: yeah so yeah i think that those that these were three of my papers
0: well thanks for that tom that was really interesting it was really good yeah. insight into what's going on with the immune system currently yeah. when sorry it gets exposed to co- covid 19 or coronavirus so yeah it's all yes. something that's been learned and
1: Uh, Sorry for going a little bit uh, lecture-like, but, uh, you know, I'm going to get better.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, So I want to say that you can find me on the Instagram. My name is Tom Fullstop Minion, and you should also follow our uh, Skeptically Inclined Instagram. So it's at Skeptically Inclined. Uh, We're going to try to produce an episode every two weeks uh, to the best of our capabilities and capacities. Um, Yeah, and I'm going to spend this week uh, to pursue
0: a new interesting paper for you guys. And what about you, Evan? Yeah, well, I'm hoping to go into more detail, as mentioned, on the mRNA vaccine that uh, Moderna is going to try and produce. So seeing what's going on there. But yeah, we're we did mention in our trailer how we will do a a funny or quirky paper. I know we haven't done one yet, so I know maybe you might be wondering why he well, we haven't. We will plan to try and do one, hopefully in the coming weeks. Um, we have some plans, but at the moment we just said we would look at coronavirus, and we're trying to still kind of figure out how best to implement it as well. So do stay with us. We will implement that reviewing uh, these weird and kind of quirky papers. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah just, to, just to give an update on that. Uh, guys, thank you for tuning in. On my end, please stay skeptical. Evan, do you have anything to add? No. Uh, yeah, stay skeptical, stay safe, and we will chat to you on the, the next one. Thanks.
1: Bye-bye.